Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mehrzad Borogerdi about his new book, Post-Revolutionary Iran, a Political Handbook. Mehrzad, welcome to the show. Uh, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your own background and and intellectual development. Uh, thank you, James, for having me in this program. Um, so um, I, uh, I'm a political scientist by training. Um, I came to the United States in 1978, which um, you know coincided with the outbreak of the um, earliest signs of the revolutionary movement in Iran. And um, initially, my plan was to become a a petroleum engineer in the U.S., but um, uh, I was so engulfed in everything that was going on in Iran that I decided to go and study political science and sociology, really to make sense of the Iranian revolution. And that became my my career. And I have been teaching uh, political science at uh, Syracuse University in upstate New York for the last 26 years and have been studying Iran for the last you know 40 years or so um, in an academic capacity. Um, much of my work um, up to this point really had to do with um, uh, intellectual history. So, for example, my first book um, entitled um, Iranian Intellectuals and the West, Uh, the tormented triumph of nativism, uh, presented a a theory about the Iranian revolution in the context of what I called uh, nativism. In other words, people's desire to have an an authentic identity of their own uh, as they confronted the onslaught of Western modernity, I argued in that book, uh, forced Iranians to try to uh, rediscover what it is that gives them a a sense of authentic identity. And of course, in a Shiite Islam, in this particular case, uh, you know, proved to be the answer. Um, so, so the argument of that book was basically that the revolution didn't happen just because there was a charismatic leader like Ayatollah, you know, Khomeini, but that uh, there were a lot of people who paved the way um, for this discourse that he managed to tap into in in a very uh, professional manner um, that had been, uh, you know, articulated uh, by intellectuals. Um, as they I saw the change, uh, the pace of reforms in Iran under the Shah. Um, uh, so um, that was the, init- uh, the initial work on on intellectual history. But I have also been studying, you know, Iranian um, uh, politics, uh, sort of current politics, day to day politics, and um, gradually grew uh, rather uh, dissatisfied with our uh, state of knowledge on Iran, uh, because I thought that basically what we have uh, comes down to uh, rather, you know, simplistic uh, uh, or or naive, you know, uh, journalism pieces uh, or highly partisan uh, works being produced by either uh, you know, Western think tanks or supporters of the Iranian government. And uh, much of this uh, work really wasn't uh, necessarily based on hard data. So that's how I became interested in doing my recent book uh, on uh, post-revolutionary politics uh, in Iran, which I'm really happy to say more about. 
Sure. Just one uh, one question. When you left Iran in 1978, which was a year before the revolution, was that coincidental that it was a year before the revolution, or were you actually leaving because you saw developments? No, it was older? totally coincidental. Uh, you know, I was 16 years old at the time, so I really had no conception of what was about to unfold, uh, you know, in Iran. Um, it was, you know, I had basically expressed an interest to my parents to go and study in the U.S., and they decided that was the time for me, you know, to do it. Uh, little did I know that a week after, you know, I arrived in the United States, martial law regime uh, will be instituted in Iran and the revolution will begin to gain momentum. Right. Um, I mean, this is looking at the uh, looking at the book. It's, it's a first love situation. I mean, it's, sorry, I, I just had to turn something off. So let's start this over again. Um, Basically, oops, sorry. Uh, let me just uh, so we don't get the sounds anymore. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, looking at the book that you did together with Khurush uh, uh, Rahim Khani, uh, this is a work of love. I mean, it's 900 page, almost 900 pages of uh, meticulously put together raw data. Um, uh, as such, probably the foremost uh, handbook on the political elite and political processes in in Iran. Uh, what did you expect to to uh, to achieve with that? Right. So um, you're absolutely right that this is a labor of love. Um, it took um, me 14 years really to write this this book. Uh, you can imagine um, the fact that the book starts, you know, uh, right before the revolution, before the age of the Internet. So how difficult it was to gather the data, um, you know, let's say regarding um uh, elections or biographies of, you know, political uh, uh, figures. Um, so there is a, you know, a logic to the madness of why it took 14 years really to assemble uh, uh, such such a, a manuscript uh, in in 900 uh, uh, pages. Um, so what I what I hope to do with this book was that um, um, again realizing that uh, a, a rather dramatic revolution had happened in Iran, uh, the first revolution in modern history that had led to the establishment of a theocratic state, um, where there was no ready blueprint for the new folks who came to power to follow. And therefore, these guys, you know, adopted a style of trial and error in terms of their model of a statecraft. And I realized that, you know, again, uh, in the Western uh, academic um, uh, and, you know, journalistic circles, um, our knowledge about these folks was rather uh, a scheme deep, right? In other words, people, you know, um, had heard about the biography of, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini or the, you know, uh, nuclear negotiator and these type of folks, but really had no idea based on empirical research about this whole generation of people who came to power after 1979. So realizing that there was no reliable who is who uh, for uh, post-revolutionary Iran, that's why I decided to, you know, put together this, uh, you know, this book, which um, not only has 
biographical sketches of over 2,300 uh, leading politicians from day one of the revolution up to the present time, but also um, uh, has, you know, a, a treasure trove of information regarding anything you need to know about Iranian politics, like, like electoral results, political parties, who is, who is related to whom in terms of, you know, family ties and, and, and things of that sort. Um, the book starts with uh, a 30 page chronology of the major events that have um, happened in Iran over you know the last uh, 40 years so really my purpose in this thing was to make sure that the um, reader has um, sort of you know can do a one-stop shop type of thing and have at his or her disposal all the facts that will be needed to make sense of the uh, uh, revolution and what has happened in the first four uh, decades of it. Also, I wanted to preserve, um, for the sake of you know historical memory, um, the uh, an account of the actors who were involved played a big role in this revolution. So, in in you know within the lines of between the lines of the biographies, you can really see the story of a revolution unfold. Uh, in 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 my view, how people's careers. <clears throat> excuse me, move um, and and change how they go up the social ladder um, and what type of challenges they faced and 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 and, and the like. So um, right now um, the uh, this book which is based on a database that we created um, which has you know one over 100,000 points of data. In other words, for each individual, for the 2,300 individual in the database, we assembled four, uh, 50 different categories of information. So as far as I know, this is really now the largest database on political elite uh, anywhere in Middle East and North Africa. I don't know of any other country that has uh, you know, um, had a, a extensive uh, and comprehensive uh, uh, database like the one that we have assembled. I, th- I think you're probably right on that. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, go you. ahead. Uh, no, if you want to just go ahead, please do. Uh, no, I just wanted to say so that you know this database, which which I'm hoping at some point uh, I would be able to uh, you know put on the internet in in a way that can be useful to to the general public, uh, will now allow us for the first time to um, you know analyze Iranian politics based on, on 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 facts and and not based on you know let's say a journalist going to Iran for a week or so and coming back with this you know impressions of what he or she saw in the limited time period uh, that they were there. So the advantage of having a longitudinal study like this one is that it sort of documents and helps us um, with the raw material that is needed for any type of researcher who wants to investigate various aspects of uh, Iranian politics. So in other words, I think we have shared our data sandbox 
with the world, really. Um, and, you know, a future researchers based on their interest can decide what they want to do, what, you know, they want to investigate. For example, let's say a researcher interested in women's issues might want to know what voting districts in Iran have voted for women and what is the degree of socioeconomic development of that uh, of that region. So that becomes one line of investigation, uh, you know, where we have, um, you know, paved the way and provided the raw material for people to use. So I think there's no doubt you've uh, created a unique reference book for any researcher on Iran, the likes of which do not exist for any other country in the Middle East. Before I come back to the book, I want to briefly come back to something that you said at the beginning uh, of the conversation, uh, where you said, you know, you had a, a revolution and the coming to power of a group that had no blueprint. And I, I think that's certainly true for, uh, for the, for, for the Islamic scholars, so for Khomeini and all the others. You also had at the time, and you did have at the time an effort to create a blueprint. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Mehdi Bazargan's son-in-law, Hussein Banasidi, who was hard at work in the year before the revolution to try and work out a blueprint of what an Islamic state would look like. Correct. That's correct. So basically what happened was that while Ayatollah Khomeini was in exile, he tapped a few of his trusted lieutenants to basically draft um, sort of the constitution uh, for the for the new uh, state. And these people went to work, um, mainly made up of uh, uh, lawyers um, and, and, you know, a couple of social scientists. And they basically looked at various constitutions, in particular, the French constitution, um, uh, I think, you know, the Belgian constitution, etc., and borrowed elements from that and tried to reconcile this with the uh, uh, you know basic tenets of the Islamic Sharia, so what we ended up with was a rather eclectic document that this uh, gentleman had had put together. And then in the early uh, days of the revolution, there was an assembly uh, which was formed to ratify the draft of this you know constitution so things changed dramatically in the course of the discussions of this uh, uh, you know group for example this idea that we now know uh, and identify iran with the idea of um, the mandate of the juris council or the theory of Vilayat Fari, a supreme, uh, you know, sort of philosopher king ruling Iran. So in, when you look at the early drafts of the constitution, there was no such office, uh, you know, envisioned. Uh, however, later, as as the debates within the assembly took place, you know, um, here now you had a lot of heavyweight uh, clerics, uh, you know, presenting their views and not just a bunch of lay lawyers and attorneys. And therefore, you know, the tenor of discussion changed a bit. And we ended up with a, with a, with a constitution that frankly is, to this day, remains extremely eclectic in terms of its nature. So when you, when you look at the Iranian constitution, you see that, you know, it's sort of one clause can contradict uh, the other. At one point, it says, 
you know, sovereignty emanates from people and therefore people's vote uh, is what, you know, defines the system. And then, you know, later on, there is a reference to uh, the buck stops with the supreme leader and that, you know, he can basically overrule uh, anything that he sees as not being compatible with the uh, you know tenets of, of Sharia, including of course you know people's votes in 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 that regard. So um, so I think uh, that that eclecticism uh, has certainly you know stayed uh, with us. It is true, um, as I try to demonstrate in the book, that the the um, post revolutionary uh, state borrowed many of the institutions of the ancien regime under the Shah, right? So, for example, the parliament estate, you know, cabinet estate, and, you know, military establishment and the like. However, what these guys did was that they also created a whole host of rather novel institutions that, you know, uh, does not exist in any other country. So, for example, creating an institution called the Guardian Council or the Assembly of Religious Experts or the Expediency Council. Or, for that matter, they went and created parallel uh, organizations and institutions. So we ended up with not only the regular military, but also the the uh, famous revolutionary guards, for example, as two parallel military institutions um, in, in, in Iran. So uh, as I said before, this was a, a case of trial and error, and, and the state basically created institutions as it gradually matured and realized what are the challenges and how they can, can they better deal uh, with issues. At, at some points, they, um, uh, you know, uh, ended many of those uh, institutions that they had created uh, because of turf wars uh, between, you know, actor A and actor B. So it's a still a work in progress. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true, although in the case of the Revolutionary Guards, which were really created because they distrusted the military and they distrusted it from day day one. In many, in some ways, you could argue the parallel of that for the longest period of time was the separation of military powers in Saudi Arabia between the military and the uh, and the national guard. Uh, but coming back to the constitution for a second, you know. Beyond the 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 concept of the vilayat efaki. Uh, uh, probably the most uh, controversial uh, clause in that um, uh, in, in that constitution, certainly internationally, is the whole concept of the export of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, uh, you're right. Uh, you know, when when we study revolutions, um, we see these attempt of revolutionaries to be really quite ambitious. Right. They want to. They basically think that the best defense is offense. So whether it's the Cuban revolution, the Chinese revolution, the Russian revolution, the idea was that, you know, if we do not export our revolution, um, uh, the uh, enemies of revolution or outside powers are going to, you know, suffocate us. Um, And therefore, uh, just like the other revolutionary counterparts, uh, Iranian um, revolutionary leaders were very optimistic that they will be able to export their revolution to neighboring uh, states. Um, in particular, they were hoping that this can happen 
in places like um, Iraq next door, um, where the ties between the Iranian clerics and the Iraqi clerical families, you know, extends uh, to, you know, a a few centuries, um, as well as in a place like uh, Lebanon, which where, again, there is a sizable Shiite, you know, community. However, what we what we ended up uh, learning really in practice was that these results did not produce the intended outcome. Um, there was no replica of Iran established, you know, anywhere uh, as a bona fide, you know, theocratic state. Um, not to say that the Iranians did not try, but other factors intervened, right? So the eight-year Iran-Iraq war, for example, um, diminished. Uh, the value of the Iranian model in the eyes of many Iraqis who might have perhaps looked at it more, you know, uh, sympathetically in the in the early days, uh, or Lebanon's multi-ethnic, multi-religious, um, uh, you know, demographic composition did not necessarily lend itself to that vision of Vilayat Fari uh, or the, the Iranian model of uh, theocracy, um, and and I think you know also the fact that. Um, Shiism um, uh, as as the state religion in Iran, as the language, as the discourse of the revolutionary practice, um, you know, had a hard time uh, sort of resonating and uh, captivating the um, the predominantly Sunni uh, Arab world in in that mo- uh, in that regard. So, in other words, the model itself also had certain shortcomings that you know became evident. Um, uh, you know, in in the later decades, as we moved away from the events of uh, uh, 1979. Let me throw another um, aspect of this at you. You tell me whether uh, the data that you compiled in the book bears this out. And that is that, you know, if you look at the first year of the uh, revolution, you know, the days when you had the Islamic Front for the Liberation of uh, Bahrain in the Diwan of Ayatollah Montazeri, uh, sort of passed on with the outbreak of the Iran-Iraq war. And, and in a sense, you had a, a, a transition from uh, from that revolutionary, religious, religiously driven revolutionary zeal into uh, what has become Iranian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Is that... Uh- is that something that that you would that you would say is borne out or contradicted in your book? No, I think you're you're right, um, and 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 that's true. Again, I go back to uh, the the Iran Iraq War, right? So the Iranian clergymen have had a rather uncomfortable relationship with Iranian nationalism. However. Because, you know, uh, frankly, they thought secular nationalism was the backbone, ideological backbone of the Shah's state. And since they were hard at work to create an alternative, you know, uh, ideological model that is based on revolutionary Shiism, they did not want to pay homage uh, that much to Iranian nationalism. However, the Iran-Iraq war forced the hands of the Iranian clerics to come to terms with the appeal of Iranian nationalism. For example, they realized one way of mobilizing the citizenry, you know, to make sacrifices, to send their sons to fight on the fronts, was to um, formulate the issue as, you know, uh, preserving safeguarding the motherland against, you know, uh, Iraqi invaders. And and that sentiment 
uh, certainly resonated with many Iranians. Let me just say this. I come from uh, the Khuzestan region of Iran, Mm -hmm. um, near the Iraqi border. And, you know, indeed, many of my high school uh, buddies um, ended up going and fighting and getting killed in the Iran-Iraq war, not because they were any type of, you know, um, uh, religious fanatics, but but rather because their their sense of uh, Iranian nationalism dictated to them that they need to go and, you know, um, uh, fight in this in this war. So whereas the Iranian state, of course, likes to still portray everything as if this was motivated by the appeal of Ayatollah Khomeini and the revolutionary message of Shiism and nothing else, the reality is much more complicated, right? Um, the, the the citizenry who went to fight in, in, in the war were motivated not just by religious zeal, but by this type of you know, nationalist uh, you know, sentiments uh, as well. And more broadly, I mean, forgetting the Iran-Iraq war, what we have seen is that the state even though you know it has uh, continued its onslaught and, and attempt to try to marginalize the sense of Iranian nationalism, they, they realize that this is an uphill battle, right? Whether it's in soccer fields where that type of sentiment manifests itself, whether it's in celebration of Nowruz, you know, the Persian New Year events, etc., the, the, the government realizes that it is very hard to try to, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of badmouth or reduce the appeal of this sense of uh, Iranian nationalism. It can come handy uh, for them as well. So why not use that as, uh, you know, a sort of a second line of reasoning uh, to win over the citizenry? Khuzestan, of course, was particularly relevant, one, because it was a major battlefield in the, um, in the Iran-Iraq war. And because it also has a significant citizenry of Arab origin. Correct. Yep. That's that's exactly the case. And um, you know, it's the oil-rich region of Iran. Of course, uh, produces much of the country's wealth. Uh, but unfortunately, um, it is not an estate. Uh, it is not a province that has really. Uh, received much attention from the state. So, you know, some of the poorest areas of Iran uh, are located there and um, uh, the ethnic tensions uh, have have a state uh, uh, to to this day and they flare up from time to time. Indeed. I want want to return uh, to the book itself and particularly to your introduction where a number of things um, struck my fancy. You, at one point in your introduction, speak about the secularization of the clergy, and I wonder yep. whether you could elaborate on that. Sure. So basically, um, the argument I, uh, I want to make is that um, the, the clerics, when, when they came to power, frankly, they had... Uh, no idea what they were getting into, right? So they had no conception of how difficult it was to run the machinery of a modern-day state. For example, um, a country like Iran, a major oil-producing state, single, you know, um, um, based economy uh, and oil, and they they got themselves into all sorts of 
uh, 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 troubles, and they had to learn on the job uh, what how it was that you know international transactions was working, etc. So gradually, the government had to come to terms, whether it was because of the hostage crisis and the pressure exerted on them by the international community, particularly the United States, whether. You're, you're referring to the uh, occupation exactly, of the right. U.S. embassy, or whether it was the uh, you know necessities of the Iran-Iraq war that forced them to that realization, or the massive drop in the price of oil in the 1980s that at at, some, at one point you know went down to less than uh, you know around ten dollars a barrel. Uh, those realities forced the state to become. Um, more um, attentive, right, to uh, international uh, uh, realities. Also, the other thing that happened in terms of secularization was that they realized they have to work within the confines of these institutions that they had uh, borrowed from the pre-revolutionary period. So in other words, if there is elections, for the Iranian parliament, the Majlis. Therefore, you know, clerics like everybody else had to compete in that electoral landscape, you know, learn the game, uh, learn, you know, how you come up with the slogans, platforms and the like uh, to win over the uh, your constituencies. And gradually then what happens was that they realized that their religiously confined message, worldview, uh, was not sufficient enough to attract a large base, right? So they had to, therefore, uh, you know, delve into other areas. The other thing that happened was that, again, the, the, the needs of a modern state in the 20th or 21st century uh, basically meant that you need technocrats, you know, you, you know, what's the point of putting clerics, let's say, in in cabinet positions where they do not have any type of expertise, right? A cleric cannot necessarily be the best minister of agriculture or minister of petroleum and, and, and the like. So, therefore, what happens under the Islamic Republic is what I call the emergence of a, a second layer, a layer of re, uh, lay religious technocrats who you know, uh, basically um, um, come and, and work shoulder to shoulder with the clerics in terms of running the, the running the state. And here, the logic of technocrats, you know, takes over. So, for example, let's say the Iran-Iraq war ends and President Rafsanjani has surrounded himself with this type of technocrats and they are telling him, well, okay, this is the time for reconstruction of a war-torn economy and you need to do X, Y, and Z in, in this regard, okay? And, and uh, so they go about uh, doing these type of things. Or let's say the challenge of dealing with Iranian women, where, you know, the, the government has basically tried to, you know, deprive them of certain rights, um, but but not necessarily others. Why? Because the backlash from the public in terms of, you know, putting up a fight uh, regarding taking away, you know, many of their rights, uh, whether it's, you know, uh, rights of, let's say, uh, divorce, custody, and, and 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 you know, getting elected to certain offices, etc. And they have seen these uh, processes. So once you put all these things together, um, and as I said at the beginning, uh, starting with the assumption that this was an eclectic state to begin with, what we see is the gradual emergence of you know more secular 
uh, outlooks uh, dominating, um, uh, you know, the, the Iran's political landscape. Uh, for example, under President Khatami, you know, one of his favorite slogans was Iran for all Iranians, regardless of, you know, the horizontal and vertical uh, you know cleavages that exist within the society uh, there. So, um, what does that slogan means? Uh, does that include, therefore, you know, um, atheistic Iranians who don't believe in God, etc.? Um, how do you deal with the sizable uh, Iranian community, the expat community outside the country, where you need their uh, money, you need their know-how, resources at their disposal, etc. So that's why we see this gradual um, uh, secularization of politics. And one other point I want to add is that certain Islamic thinkers, for example, the philosopher Abdul Karim Sirouj, who has played a you know really big role in in all of this thing, basically they made the argument that listen by making by mixing religion and politics, the one that bends the knee to the other is religion, not politics. Right? It is religion that needs to adjust itself to the everyday realities of politics, not the other way around. And therefore, these guys argued that you have basically taken away one of the most cherished values of of religion, which is supposed to be, you know, sort of uh, divorced from this materialistic, you know, wishes of of citizens. But now religion has become an instrument of a state, an instrument of governing. So we can execute people and say, you know, this is because of, of Islam. So these guys have argued um, that basically you have given religion a bad name by making it into the servant of politics and not necessarily its its master. So secularization of thought in that sense has also come about. <coughs> I'm sorry. I want to return for a moment to your concept of um, the religious technocrats and juxtapose that with the, the revolution itself and then the um, immediate period after the revolution, whereas during the revolution itself you had essentially a coalition whereby uh, less religiously driven forces or non-religious forces were <coughs> I'm sorry, whereby less religiously driven forces and non-religious forces were convinced that the uh, clergy would need them to run the state. And Bazargan was basically seen as an exponent of that. And yet, his the fall of the Bazargan government was also viewed as the defeat of the technocrats. Correct. So you're absolutely right that in the early days of the revolution, if you look at the makeup, for example, of the Revolutionary Council um, that Ayatollah Khomeini created while he was in exile uh, in uh, France, um, the makeup of that uh, group, which is listed in my book, by the way, um, you know, uh, encompasses both clerics and, you know, lay uh, uh, religious intellectuals and politicians, the like of, you know, Mehdi Bazargan. <clears throat> However, what happened uh, with with the with the in the early days of the revolution was that this technocratic elite, this liberal elite, 
were basically marginalized as the clerics started to gain the upper hand. Please remember that in the early days of the revolution, none of the clerics was occupying a ministerial post, right? So, for example, the current Supreme Leader Khamenei, his very first job was a deputy to a layman who was minister of defense. So Khamenei started as that. Hashemi Rafsanjani, another leading figure of the revolution, his first job after the revolution was, you know, deputy interior minister. Okay, but then they learned, you know, on the job. And uh, at first, Ayatollah Khomeini did not want the clerics to be... uh, the country's president. That's how we ended up with somebody like Bani Sadr uh, as, as the first post-revolutionary uh, uh, president. However, things began to change, uh, you know, as the uh, uh, attacks by the Mujahideen al on the state, you know, started claiming the lives of many leading, you know, clerics. Ayatollah Khomeini and his lieutenants decided that, well, you know, we need to have a firm grip on what is happening in the country, and therefore he put his, you know, trusted lieutenants in important positions, including the presidency that I, uh, Mr. Khamenei occupied for, you know, eight years, followed by Rafsanjani for eight years, etc. Um, however, you know, um, Bazargan and that, you know, group of liberal uh, uh, Muslim intellectuals were forced out, but but the state still needed to generate. Right, a second uh, generation of technocrats to run the machinery of the state, and I think this is the group that we know the least about in the Western world. Right, we have the biographies of some leading clerics, but for example, every time I go to Washington D.C. and talk to the government officials and say U.S. government officials and say, well, you know, if I ask you. For five minutes, right? Can you talk intelligently only for five minutes, no more, about what is the collective um, picture of, let's say, the gentlemen who serve as Iran's governor generals in the 31 provinces of Iran? The room goes silent because we know nothing about the background of these individuals, right? Or if I ask them, you know, what is the profile of an Iranian diplomat? an ambassador, etc. So this is the generation that we don't know about. And that's why I'm, I'm you know, uh, hopeful that this book will be so useful to the you know, um, uh, uh, people who are interested in this type of uh, uh, issues to be able to you know, look up the biographies of people and say, wait a minute, how did somebody um, like, let's say, Javad Zarif, the current uh, foreign minister, where did he go to school? Uh, how old was he when he got this position or, or that position and the like? So, so that you can see the evolution of these individuals who have come through the ranks and now constitute the backbone of the state. Let me add this, James, that, you know, of the more than 2,300 people who are in my database, only two or three had an important political position, for example, serving in parliament before the revolution. Everybody else is brand new, right? So 99.9% of the people who are uh, occupying important positions in Iran now are brand new. And therefore, 
it is crucially important for us to know something about their background, upbringing, you know, ethnicity, educational, pedigree, and the like. I want to come back to something that you said early on in the uh, in the interview, in which you spoke about basically a hybrid. So the new regime uh, taking over some of the institutions of the former regime and creating its own institutions at the same time. Um, yet, in, in, if I recall correctly, in the introduction to your book, you talk about the importance of personal relationships rather than institutional relationships. Can you uh, uh, bring the two in, in, in harmony with each other for me? Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, um, let's start with the institutions, right? Uh, as you uh, rightfully pointed out, um, uh, for example, when it came to the military establishment, because the new regime did not trust the uh, military regime that was basically, um, you know, uh, made by the Shah, they created uh, the Revolutionary Guards as a parallel organization, which is a long-established practice in the Middle East. We can trace it back to the Janissary force of the Ottoman Empire that was, you know, performing the same type of uh, uh, function or uh, or uh, Saddam's Republican Guards and the like. All right. But but that was not the only one, right? You know, for example, you had therefore a ministry of agriculture, but also a ministry of agricultural jihad uh, that that was created. Um, so um, you know, basically trying to do other types of revolutionary activity in the realm of uh, agriculture. Uh, as I point out in the book, and you know, one of the fascinating things I think in the book is that uh, I point out year by year. What were the new revolutionary institutions that the new state created? And we list over, I don't know, 80, 90 of them that I was able to count that the state created. So this was the necessity. This was, you know, what they felt, um, you know, having a theocratic state really requires. Okay. Um, uh, social engineering, in other words, uh, and networking has been very crucial to to the to the clerics, and you know, uh, you look at somebody like the current supreme leader Khamenei. He's a micromanager. He's an institutional man, and therefore, you know, wants to make sure that, let's say, the Friday prayer leaders uh, around the country are are appointed by him in the major centers. Or, and that they basically uh, they receive their talking points on a weekly basis from his office so that they know what it is that they are supposed to be preaching to the public every Friday. What I say regarding the uh, individual networks, I don't think necessarily negates this fact. You see, what happens in Iran is that um, the, the clerics have a very... Um, extensive network, as we, we we know, and and again in the last section of the book where I mentioned the family ties, I have tried to document this. Clerical families end up marrying into each other. Okay, that has been a long-established, uh, you know, uh, practice, and this way you will see how uh, you know the family ties between elites in many ways can explain many of the positions that they have adopted. Um, if, you, if you do not have access to this sort of inside baseball uh, information, we are often puzzled by why did, you know, person X say 
you know, such and such and person Y, um, for example, supported him or opposed him, then, you know, some of these family ties becomes rather important in, in that regard. Keep in mind that the circle of trust uh, among many of these Iranian politicians is very limited. It, I find it fascinating that, you know, presidents such as, you know, Rafsanjani, uh, Khatami, Ahmadinejad and Narohani, each of these folks basically tapped their brothers to either be their chief of staff in the president's office or to be one of their closest advisors, right? Which tells you something about the significance of these, uh, you know, networks and ties, and um, you know how how things are are are, are done. Um, and then, you know, you have also this other phenomena that, again, we document in the book. A person like Khamenei as the supreme leader, he basically handpicks over 400 individuals, right? And he appoints them to important posts in the, in the, in the country. For example, his personal representatives at universities or his personal representatives in province X and Y. Now, you look at the background of these individuals who are being tapped for these positions, and, you know, you see, aha, here is the ties. For example, many of the individuals who served as ministers when Mr. Khamenei was president for eight years, he has remained very loyal to them and has kept them in various capacities. Case in point is Ali Akbar Velayati, a former foreign minister, you know, who served 16 years as Iran's foreign minister, eight years of those under Khamenei as president. And then, you know, once he was out in 1997, Khamenei then brought him into his own circle and appointed him as a foreign policy advisor and appointed him to some, you know, uh, posts. Uh, where he can still stay relevant. So um, it is, in my view, of utmost significance for us to be able to detect where these personal ties are and how they work. You spoke uh, about the importance of social engineering and extensively about social relationships. Uh, yet you stressed in the introduction to the book that you were not looking at the social impact of the revolution. Right. Right. That was that was uh, beyond the scope of the work because, again, as you can see, uh, when I when I wrote this thing, it was twenty two hundred pages, and my publisher said enough, stop. Right. So th- there are a lot of number of things that I didn't. For example, I did not look at the economic elite. Uh, I was not interested in doing a discourse analysis on on the elite. Um, I was not interested in looking at social impacts of of these individuals because, again, that would have been a never-ending project. Basically, the way I, uh, you know, um, set the agenda for myself was that I want to look at the politically relevant elite and not just all elites, right? So, for example, in the book, you know, I don't cover ambassadors. I don't cover 
um, the provincial, you know, uh, uh, governor generals. Uh, I wanted I wanted to look at the top of the political pyramid in Iran, which again had twenty three hundred individuals in it. Uh, in other words, anything in parliament, anyone in ministers uh, serving as cabinet minister, anybody serving in such crucial institutions as the Guardian Council, Assembly of Religious Experts, Expediency Council, heads of, you know, revolutionary guards or the military establishment, you know, leading officials in the judiciary. This was the constituency that I was interested in and not necessarily, you know, going down the ladder because, again, it would have been awfully difficult in terms of data collection um, to be able to compile a comprehensive list of everybody who has served in these uh, positions. Uh, unfortunately, um, uh, data collection and um, data preservation in Iran, um, especially in the early days of the revolution, uh, was not that uh, great, and therefore it would have been an impossible task. Mehrzad, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, to round this up, Tell me where, where where are you going from here with the book? What's your next project? So, um, you know, I, I am interested in experimentation. So my first book, as I said, was a work of intellectual history. Then I decided to do this book, which was, uh, you know, heavy empirical work. And, uh, you know, frankly, I learned a lot in terms of uh, – uh, doing, uh, you know, empirical work, number crunching and so forth, rather than abstract theorizing. But now for my, you know, next project, I think I want to continue with my experimentation. And um, I want to, you know, uh, basically write uh, my personal uh, story and that of my family's involvement uh, with the revolution, you know, in, in a subjective manner uh, from my lens, because I think, you know, again, um, what is fascinating about uh, my generation is that we saw uh, some amazing, uh, you know, events back to back, outlandish events from the revolution to the um, uh, hostage crisis to the Iran-Iraq war to the uh, you know uh, economic embargoes that Iran faced, and you know the maturation process of a new generation, uh, the uh, splits and the cleavages that emerged among the revolutionary elites, um, you know relationship between um, uh, expats and those inside Iran. So uh, you know I have a story to tell uh, from a personal. Uh, lens, and, and I am hoping that uh, basically my previous work, both the theoretical work and the empirical work, will be um, you know laying the foundation for the story I want to say in my next project. You no doubt have a fascinating story to tell, and I will look forward to reading that. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you.